going to jump into the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Isaiah, chapter 40. I'll be reading that in just a moment. All right. So um, before I read that, though, uh, I just want to begin with a question, maybe a couple of questions. Are you, uh, are you tired? And I don't mean sleepy, but I mean something much deeper than that. Are you weary? Do you feel uh, drained or exhausted or like you're close to failing? I think many of you do feel this way or you have felt this way at some point, no doubt You will feel this way at some point. Why are you weary? There could be all sorts of reasons that we could be weary. Life is filled with stresses, obviously. Hardships, conflicts, injustice. We have bodies. Our bodies aren't always the way we want them to be. They often feel, uh, we often feel betrayed by our bodies. We get sick, maybe constantly sick. Things break. We face chronic pain or illness. Our spirits also can be worn down by constant striving, feeling like there's never enough that we can do to stay afloat. Our spirits can be weary from disappointments that we face in life or betrayal or loss or maybe just constant anger. Maybe we're weary because we have been foolish. We've made sinful choices. We have bad habits over years of neglecting to uh, discipline ourselves and live in ways that we know we should live. And so as a result, we're facing hardships and we become weary over that. So are you weary? And what do you do with your weariness? So we've been in uh, this new series in Isaiah. We just started last week, and we're looking at this doctrine of God. So we're not really walking through the book of Isaiah like we often do, but we're going to jump around in this book and mine the depths, I hope, of it in hopes to get a clearer picture of who it is that we serve and that we worship and that has made us and redeemed us, who is God. And we're using Isaiah, the prophet's book, to do that. Now, I said last week that this book um, took place, uh, the ministry of Isaiah took place from about 740 BC to 700 BC um, as Isaiah prophesied to Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. Remember, Israel after King David and then his son Solomon divided. There was sort of a civil war and There were two kingdoms that came, uh, one in the north, one in the south. Judah's the southern kingdom. It's where Jerusalem is. It's it's the more faithful of the two kingdoms, although both continually strayed into idolatry. And uh, after this division, uh, there was a lot of conflict and war. But in the time of Isaiah, there had been about 75 years of relative peace and prosperity. And that's primarily because this kingdom in the northeast near what is now Iraq, Assyria, had uh, sort of mellowed out. They had been a pretty brutal empire, and because of some weak kings, they were calmed down a little bit. But in the days of Isaiah, 
Assyria began to become prominent again, and their power began to rise as a new and stronger king came along. And so the northern kingdom, Ephraim, or Israel, or Samaria, began to make alliances with Aram. That's a kingdom just north of Israel. And uh, they began to pressure the southern kingdom to join them in an alliance against Assyria. And so Judah was facing this tension between forming an alliance with a sort of unfaithful northern kingdom and a foreign nation, Aram, against an even worse empire, Assyria. Who should they align with? They weren't sure. They were stuck. And Isaiah prophesied and began to proclaim to them and preach to them to trust Yahweh, to trust the God of the covenant, the one who promised to bring prosperity and faithfulness if they would just trust in him. And so as this is going on, King Uzziah, the great king who had brought this peace and prosperity for so long, he dies. And so the fear in Israel and in uh, Judah just goes through the roof. And that's why last week we looked at this vision that Isaiah had of the Lord on the throne and the temple, high and lifted up, the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah has this encounter with this holy God, this transcendent, holy other, pure and good and righteous and loving, all-powerful God, and he is just undone. And he's brought to this place of repentance. He sees that he himself is unclean. There's, There's ugliness, there's dirt in him, and he lives among a people that are unclean. And so he's repentant, and then he is touched by God's forgiveness, and then he is commissioned and sent on this ministry. And so um, for 39 chapters in the beginning of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah prophesies to the kings of Judah. And none of it works. uh, Judah is still idolatrous. There's a little bit of repentance, but it doesn't really take. And so um, at the end of chapter 39, we uh, have a transition into chapter 40, which is where we're looking today. And chapter 40 through the end of the book really takes place at a later time. It's Isaiah's prophecy to future Judah when they will be in exile for their lack of repentance and then God's promises of restoration. And so um, we're kind of diving into this moment when Isaiah shifts his message and begins to speak a word of comfort to a people that are weary, that feel forgotten because they are now in exile because of their own sin and idolatry. And so we're going to look at the doctrine of God. We're going to look today particularly at his eternality and the fact that he has all power. So let me me read our passage, um, chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fail or fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you meet us 
as weary people, as people prone to faint, as people who lack strength, and who cry out in our suffering, not always acknowledging that we brought ourselves into this place of suffering, sometimes being unwilling to just admit it's a broken world and the suffering has nothing to do with us, but we, we cry out. And we ask that you would meet us here and give us your grace, renew us, strengthen us, that we might run, that we might walk with you, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to just have uh, three points. We're going to look at the everlasting and almighty God. We're going to look at the weary sufferers and the renewed. So first I want to hone in on verse 28 and talk about the everlasting and almighty God. Tim Keller um, used to say, um, especially when he was talking with non-Christians or, or atheists in particular, he would say, you tell me uh, about the God that you don't believe in, and maybe I don't believe in that God either. And I think that's a, just a really helpful question to ask. We tend to assume that when people talk about God, they mean the same thing. And that's not necessarily true. The concept of God is by no means a universal concept. There's all sorts of different visions of, of who God is and what he is like. In fact, I would say most people struggle to understand what we talked about last week, that God is holy, that he is completely different than anything else that exists. We think of God as just a, a sort of part of creation, sort of a bigger version or more powerful version of something in creation, right? I had a philosophy professor in college, and he, he used to call this idea of God the omni-God. You know, that word omni means like all. So we talk about omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, all that. He's the omni-God. So we take some quality and then we just say God is the one with all of that. And uh, he says that is a God of our own rationality and philosophical construction. And it misses the God that is revealed in Scripture. Right? Um, when we predicate God, when we say something about God, God is blank. We tend to think that God is blank in the same way that I might say that about you or I. God is strong. Derek is less strong, but kind of strong, right? We mean it in a totally different way when we predicate it about God because we cannot really comprehend God's essence. God is holy, and so everything we say about him is a, a sort of an approximation. It's an analogous way of speaking about who God is, or sometimes we talk about God in the negative. He's not like us in this way. We are bound in time and space. God is not bound in time and space because God is spirit. He is not matter. What I want us to do as we go through this series is look at how the Bible reveals this one true and living God and not just sort of think of God as a higher version of ourselves. And I think verse 28 um, is a great place to look at two characteristics or attributes of God that are familiar to us, but it's important that we look at how the Bible speaks about these attributes in relation to us. So look at verse 28 again, where Isaiah says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah is talking about uh, the Holy One of Israel, and he describes him as everlasting and I would say he's also describing him as almighty. These two phrases kind of capture 
a host of, of passages in the Bible that teach these two ideas, that God is the everlasting God. He is eternal. He is um, the beginning and the end, as Revelation says. He has always been and he always will be. But more than that, God never came into being and he will never cease to be. In fact, he relates to time in a completely different way than we do. He does not experience time as a sequence. Rather, he exists outside of time altogether. In fact, all moments are ever present to God. Now, that is that you can't get your head around that when you try to start thinking about the nature of time, let alone what it would mean to exist outside of time, to be an eternal God. But that is the way the Bible speaks of it. He is everlasting. He endures forever. He has always been. And all things are present to him at once. And beyond that, Isaiah says, he does not faint or grow weary. This is a way of saying God has all power, right? You and I, we faint. We run out of strength. We grow weary. We tire. We diminish. God cannot be diminished in any way. God cannot be... Um, overpowered in any way. He possesses all power. He doesn't tire. He's not limited by anything beyond his own self. And this is why Jesus says all things are possible with God because he has all power and he possesses that power differently than you or I. There is no external source to his power, right? My power comes from all the junk that I eat, right? But God doesn't get any power from anything outside of himself. He is this fount of life and power. And he is what enlivens all else. So God exists outside of time and he possesses all power. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, contrary to atheistic materialism, the universe and humanity is not an accident right? Uh, it's not just meaningless and random. The universe is willed by this divine being, this eternal consciousness. And God knows all that is and all that has ever been and all that will ever be and all that ever could have been. And he upholds all things in the universe, sustaining it and carrying it along. And he directs all things as the ultimate and final cause of everything. And this is why Paul says, quoting a philosopher uh, in the Greek world in Acts 17, that in him we live and move and have our being. I could spend a lot of time going through all of Scripture and just talking about all the ways the Bible says that God is everlasting, eternal, endures forever, has all power. Um, but I, I think you get the, you know, the gist of it, as hard as that is to um, understand. But here's what I'm curious about, which is how does this description of God hit you? How do, how do you feel hearing this, right? If God has existed for all eternity and has all power, you might be wondering, why didn't he prevent blank from happening to me? If God has all power, that kind of terrifies me a little bit, maybe, because I think I've gotten a rough go of things, and I don't trust that I'm safe if I can't prevent God from doing things to me that I, I don't want to be done, or I don't want things to happen to me and God allows it. What sort of agency do I have? Am I just a robot? Maybe some of these questions um, start coming up in your mind as you hear this description of this transcendent, eternal, almighty God.
And so I want to hone in and, and look at how the Bible brings this truth about who God is to bear on us. And so turn to verse 27 and 28, where we look at this, the weary sufferers. And I want you to consider the context again here that I mentioned a moment ago. Isaiah has prophesied to Judah. They are now in exile in Babylon, and his prophecy is anticipating how they will feel when they are cast out of their homeland. There's, there's been death, there's been ruin, there's been loss, and they are in a completely new place. It's in this context that we hear this words about who God is. It is in the context of the suffering of his people. And suffering is a universal problem, right? Think about the different types of suffering that we might experience. There's obviously the physical suffering that we face in life, but there's also the psychological suffering, the anxiety, the depression, the despair, the loneliness, the sense of betrayal. There's the relational suffering we might experience, the conflict, the broken relationships, Everyone has to reckon with suffering eventually. And so, you know, the Bible gives one vision of how we think about that. But first, I want to just explore for a second how non-Christians or atheists have to think about suffering, right? And, and if you think deeply about what it means that the universe, there is no God, there's only stuff, then you have to conclude that suffering is ultimately meaningless because the universe would ultimately be meaningless, Right? That suffering is really no different in this understanding of the world than if a leaf falls to the ground. It's the same as cancer or rain on the earth or people starving, a plant dying, or one animal eating another, or heartbreak. All of these things are just the way the world is. It just is. Suffering is a reality, and you just have to deal with it. That's, there's no other account in atheism for suffering other than to say it just is that way. Life is pain, princess. That's Princess Bride, if, in case you didn't know that one. Right? So how do you respond to that? As an atheist, you can, you can despair and just say there's no hope. I lack the power to avoid suffering. Death is the only escape. Or you can deny this reality and sort of uh, push it away and say, I can make myself strong. I can fight against death. I can uh, overcome hardships. I can improve myself. I can solve this. I'm going to fight against the way things are. Isaiah says, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. That will not work forever. Nobody can cheat death. We're all going to become weary at some point. Or thirdly, you can distract yourself. You can just not think about the cold, hard reality of a universe in which there is no God and there is no meaning. Don't think about it. Eat, drink, be merry. Just do all that you can to enjoy the moment that you have. Or perhaps, finally, atheists might say, well, we have to come to terms with the hard reality of suffering. You accept it. You live the life that you can, and you try to just grit your teeth and, and bear it. I think Christianity fares uh, much better than this. Given the portrait of God as eternal and almighty, Christians do face a different temptation, though. And it's uh, partly what I alluded to a moment ago, which is this, this sort of problem of suffering or evil for us. If God is good and if God loves me, he would stop the suffering in the world. He would stop my suffering, we might say. Or we might conclude God must not exist because uh, if he was good, he wouldn't allow this. Perhaps he's not good at all. How could God allow my betrayal, my physical pain, the deep violation 
of my dignity that I've experienced, the loss of my dreams, and so forth. How could God allow these circumstances to continue? In my experience, most of the people that I talk to that struggle to believe in God or struggle to trust God do so because it is hard to imagine an eternal God with all power allowing them to experience the suffering that they experience. But listen to what Isaiah says here. And notice the way that Isaiah speaks to this people who have gone to exile because of their own sin and are mourning, are despairing. Notice what he says to them. Let me read again uh, 27 and, and 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? And I just want to point out that the way God responds to these sufferers is by gently asking questions that also remind Israel who he is and who they are, Judah. There's a gentleness and a nearness to this almighty God that he speaks about. It's, he's like, um, like a patient parent. Maybe you've seen one of these. I saw one once. A patient parent who sees their child distraught and in pain and afraid and angry and gently and calmly asks questions to try to help that child come out of what they're experiencing. And that's what God is doing here. It's an invitation to trust. He asks these questions. And the first questions that he asks demonstrate that he does, in fact, see and understand their pain. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. See, he's naming how they are feeling in that moment. God does, in fact, see their suffering. He knows what they're asking. He does, in fact, see that they are wondering if he is just because um, he is not taking up their, their cause. And he's offering a gently correction to their distorted view. He can name it. He does, in fact, see what they're going through. And then he asks this question um, in a way that invites them to remember who they are. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Now, why does he address them in that way? God addresses Judah in a way that reminds them of the covenant that he has made with them. He calls them by their namesake, by Father Jacob, who wrestled with God and was blessed by God and was renamed Israel. This Yahweh, this God of the covenant, is addressing them to remind them who they are and who he is. And he's asking them, have you forgotten who I am, who you are? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Do you, do you not know these things? He says, of course they do. But Judah is so overwhelmed by the tragedy of exile, by the pain of their bondage, and by the injustice of Babylon's oppression, that they are weary and empty and despairing. And this is the context of Isaiah's word to them about God's eternality and power. He says, um, you are overwhelmed and stuck, but I am not. You don't see the reasons, but my ways are unsearchable. You have forgotten me and you've forgotten who you are, but I certainly have not, he says to them. And friends, I, I want you to understand that this is the only way that the Bible answers the problem of, of suffering and of evil. We don't get all the explanations, a big worked out philosophical system that justifies all of God's 
works and actions in the world. We sang a moment ago, God's works are good. We are told God's works are good. And yet we're left without clarity on how exactly all that we might go through in this world is good. But instead, we're reminded of God's covenantal love for his people. This is how he comforts us. God's power, he says, is for the good of his people. We cannot possibly understand the depths of God's wisdom. This is why he says in verse 28, God's understanding is unsearchable. You can't get to the bottom of understanding the mind of God and his purposes in the world, right? Just like a young child cannot understand the pain that comes with some of the doctor's visits or dentist's visits, but the parents know this is for their good. And a person who's never uh, trained in the piano for years and years and years cannot understand at first the pain of that discipline, but how it can bear this beautiful fruit of being able to make beautiful music. God's thoughts are higher and beyond our thoughts. God's eternality and power mean that the suffering that we're facing isn't the final word. God will not let it be, and he tells us there's a promise here. And that's what I want to focus on here at the end, the renewed, verses 29 through 31. God doesn't just say, I've got reasons you can't understand. It's beyond your understanding. He doesn't just say that. He promises an end to suffering at the proper time. He promises to sustain us and give us strength so that we soar. Listen to what he says uh, to Judah. God's power is for his people. It is for those who trust him. Verse 28, again, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And here's the promise. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isaiah is saying God has all power in the universe. He, he possesses all power. Nothing is hard for him. Nothing is impossible. And he gives power. He gives strength to those who are faint and weak. And he reminds us, even youths shall faint and be weary. There's nobody, I mean, even the strongest among us will faint and grow weary and be exhausted. Even empires and kingdoms will fail. But he says in verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. God renews the strength of the faint and the weary of those who wait for the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? This is another way of saying hope in God. They are patiently trusting him. They have expectation that God will do what he says he's going to do. And that is going to bring renewal, he says. And he gives three examples of this renewal. Essentially, he's saying those who wait on the Lord will be renewed, and it's going to, they're going to do impossible things. And he says that in three ways. They will mount up, or they will rise up, on wings like eagles. Now think about that image in a time when there were no planes, right? I mean, now we think, wow, eagles, that's pretty amazing. But we have planes that go to, you know, we go to space. So we think, oh, that's, that's quaint. But think about living in a time when no one could possibly imagine flying through the skies and soaring like the eagles, this magnificent beast. And Isaiah says, uh, this is what the Lord will do for you. You, you will Mount up. You will rise up and be able to soar like eagles. You will run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Think about what that would mean in a time when you walked everywhere and there were no machines. You could only get so far so fast. And he says, uh, there will be no growing weary or growing faint. Now, all of these images are powerful in and of themselves, but all of them also echo God's delivering of Israel 
out of Egypt in slavery. It's a hearkening back to Exodus 19, where um, the Lord brings Israel out and they mount up on wings like eagles. It's, a, it's an image of release from bondage, from exile, which is exactly where is, uh, Judah is in Babylon. And so what Isaiah is saying here is, those who trust in Yahweh, the eternal one, the almighty one, they will be delivered. Now, how do we know that this promise is true? That the power of the eternal almighty God is for our good. We know this because this everlasting almighty God became faint and weak to the point of death in order to renew us. God did not remain distant and powerful. God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ in order to suffer and go into the deepest exile with us and for us. Friends, Jesus Christ, the one who has all power, unbound by time, came into time, into space and time, took on a human body and became weak and vulnerable. Christ lived a life of joy and love and he poured himself out so that he was faint and weary regularly throughout his life. He was exhausted traveling around and teaching and healing and delivering. Think of all the physical um, hardship he went through in his life. Poverty, hunger, exhaustion, ultimately the cross itself. Think of the relational suffering he experienced, the family tension, the controversies he encountered, the loneliness of being misunderstood even by his friends, the abandonment of him uh, at his hour of greatest need by his friends, the criticism he faced, the suffering that he had psychologically, all the stress, the demands of the ministry of the crowds pressing in on him, pressuring to lead them, and the pain uh, uh, of healing so many people and yet watching them misunderstand, right? Jesus came into the world and suffered. He grew faint and weary to the point of death for us. And that, friends, is how we know that this almighty eternal God is for us. We don't get all the answers to our suffering, even the chronic suffering. How could it go on this long? But we do know that God did not remain distant from us, but he suffered for us and with us, going all the way down into the weakness of death to bring us out of our exile, the, the exile that we do deserve. This is a gift of grace, right? A lot of our suffering, and of course the, the suffering of the world, we are partly responsible for that. We've created this mess, our own idolatry, our own transgressions, but Jesus came as a gift of grace to bring us out of exile, to uh, mount us up on wings of eagles, and to renew us in the resurrection. God does not answer the problem of suffering and pain by telling us all the reasons. God joins us in our suffering, and he brings us out as the one who is mighty to save. Now, um, I've grown weary in my life uh, a number of times. Sometimes it's been because of disappointments, of uh, betrayals. Sometimes it's been the stress of family life or pastoring. And I've felt like, what's the point of continuing with this? Why do I keep trying? Why doesn't God do this instead? And I think I shared um, a year ago when I you know, was heading out to sabbatical, I felt pretty lost. And uh, I was fainting. You know, I was uh, weak. And uh, what I have experienced many times in my life is that the Lord, as I look to him, has provided the strength that I needed uh, for that time, right? I've not entered into the resurrection yet, but the Lord provides the strength for that moment, for that time. 
And I say that because I know, you know, many of you are in very hard seasons where you are fainting and you're growing weary and you, you don't know how you're going to make it. And so I just want to give you a few things um, to think about and to hopefully do as a response to this portrait that we're given today in our passage. And the first is that I want to invite you to attend to God's presence, which is just to say to pray. Uh, and I, I think I, when I preached on praying um, in Matthew just a couple months ago, I talked about prayer as attending to the presence of God. God is always present everywhere. <laughs> He's always around us. And prayer is when we take a moment to attend to that presence. We recognize that God is with us. And that's especially important when we are suffering and when we are fainting and when we are fearing, feeling weary is to remember God is near to us. And he is um, present to sustain us and to comfort us. And that is the first step in waiting on the Lord, is to attend to the presence of God, to remember that you are not alone and that he is with you. And then as you do that, the next thing is um, to lament to God, to cry out to him, to pour out your heart to him, and to be honest about your pain. He can handle it. <laughs> he can hear you say, I don't get this. It hurts. I want it to be over. Why won't you do something about this? He can handle that. What's dangerous for you is to be silent about that and to not talk to him in the midst of your suffering. And then thirdly, I invite you to remember. Uh, this is what God is saying through Isaiah to Judah. He's, he's asking those questions to invite them to remember who they are and who he is. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Normally, this renewal that God brings uh, is in part related to us forgetting who we are. And as we remember who we are, we find there is strength to persevere through what we're facing. And we also have to remember that God doesn't provide us all strength that we would want right now. He provides the strength we need for today. And it's easy to overlook that. It's easy to think that God's not listening to us, but he is giving us what we need today. Because ultimately, these promises that he gives to Judah and to us are fulfilled in the resurrection. That is when we will truly be renewed fully and we will mount up on wings like evil and eagles and we will not faint or grow weary because we will be given new bodies and we'll live forever in the presence of God. And until that time, we, we get just enough to walk in the paths that God has set for us. And then finally, again, encourage you to wait on the Lord. This is what it looks like to walk in faith, to patiently trust that God will supply you with this strength. Uh, this whole passage is an invitation to trust in God. And it's, it's the fundamental of the Christian faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk trusting that God will give us his promises, that he will sustain us, that we will be raised up on that last day. And so um, while I think God must have many good reasons to put us through the things that we, that we go through, we don't always get those answers, but we do get the presence of God. We get um, his solidarity with us and our suffering, his um, setting us free and promising to renew us in the last day. And so um, as we go to the Lord's table here, um, I want to invite you to let this eternal and almighty God feed and strengthen you here at this table. This is one of the means that he provides for us to be strengthened. And it seems um, small. It seems like, how can this do that for us? But here, um, God gives us a taste of these promises, and he gives us just enough for what we need today. We can taste his promises um, with our mouths and on our tongues, 
And we're reminded that Christ entered into our weakness. He gave his body to save us from exile. He shed his blood to cleanse us from all the ways we've been unfaithful that has brought suffering into this world. And so we eat knowing that we will soar. We will fly in the resurrection. Let's pray together.